welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, your host, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Christ in Context. Um, super glad that you are joining us. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, this was pointed out to me. And I, I also used to make fun of my friend for this, but uh, I don't know why I say us, because it's just me. I'm alone in my apartment. I don't know why. I think it's the royal us, or the royal we. I don't know, but uh, I maybe I should stop using that, but I don't know. It makes sense to talk like that. I don't know why, but anyways, um, we are in part four of Zechariah. Um, which is going to be all of chapter two. So buckle up. This is going to be a really a good episode. I'm really excited. Um, before we dive in, though, um, I just want to mention that um, I'll be at the Doctrine and Devotion Conference up in, I think it's St. Charles, um, but it's put on by Doctrine and Devotion, um, Joe Thorne and those guys. Um, so I'll, I'll be at that conference. Um, if you'll be there, try to find me, uh, flag me down. I'll be with Luke, um, from steady anchor podcast. So yeah, we'll be there and we'd love to meet and try to connect and all that good stuff. So I'm really excited for that. Um, the conference is on covenant theology, which I've already mentioned, like definitely isn't one of my strong suits. So I'm really excited to dive in. Um, Sam Renahan is the, he's going to be the main speaker, I believe. So that's going to be super, super cool. So let's get into Zechariah. Um, I've got four and a half pages of notes, I think. Um, a lot of it is just long uh, quotations of scripture or Calvin. <laughs> so yeah, this is going to be a really good episode. I really enjoyed studying uh, these, it's only 13 verses, but it's still a whole chapter. So yeah, this is good stuff. Let's get into it. Verse one of Zechariah chapter two, Zechariah says, then I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, there's a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him run speak to that young man saying jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it for behold i declares the lord will be the wall of fire around her and i will be the glory in her midst ho there flee from the land of the north declares the lord for i have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens declares the lord ho zion Escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon, for thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will save my hand, my hand, I will wave my hand over them, so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to 
the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Lord, the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Oh, wow. It's a lot of reading. I thought I was going to get the whole thing without stumbling, and then I stumbled. So this is a really, really neat um, vision. It's not like a, a super abstract vision like the the past couple ones where we kind of had to dig in and, you know, think about what type of symbols are going on or what is Zechariah seeing or maybe what is Zechariah understanding that we're not understanding. Um, but this one's just mainly a discourse between um, the angel of the Lord. And we'll see later, actually, I'm convinced that Christ is delivering this message to Zechariah. And maybe he didn't reveal to Zechariah that he was the Christ. But um, the way that it reads, I think, makes a ton of sense that um, it was Christ. Um, and maybe Zechariah understood it as the coming Messiah, but didn't identify it as Christ. Um, the text isn't clear, so I don't want to make any bold assertions. So we're going to go verse by verse. Um, not exhaustively. We're going to go, I think one or two verses at a time. There's a couple where we'll only do one verse. So verses one and two, let's go back there. It says, then I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. So right here is, um, not, it's not super abstract. This is, I guess the, the most, like the, the only part of the vision where, you know, like last week there were four horns and, um, well, actually it wasn't last week. It was two weeks ago. Um, there were four horns and there's some confusion about like, what is a horn? Um, what does that symbolize? Whereas we hear the phrase a measuring line and we, maybe if you don't, if you're not super familiar, uh, we'll understand that the measuring line is, um, just kind of this idea of building. And this was in chapter one, verse 16, where Zechariah saw, um, a measuring line being stretched out. Um, Zechariah one sixteen says, therefore, thus says, the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. So we might even conclude that um, verse 1 is kind of a continuation of the vision in chapter 1, uh, verse 16. So that's pretty uh, self-explanatory, I guess. Um, a measuring line just kind of gets the idea across that there's building, there's some type of construction. But instead of the angel going and kind of completing his task of measuring the city, another angel comes out. Um, and so in verse 3, we get this um, statement where, and behold, an angel who was speaking with me was going out. So this angel, he's got the... Uh, the measuring line, he's going out, he's ready to measure the whole length of the city. And another angel comes out to meet Zechariah. And then we get verse four, where 
the angel who comes out and meets him, the second one, says, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited. Actually, I misspoke. Um, the second angel that comes out speaks to the other, the first angel. Um, this part, the language is confusing. You know, what it, What does it mean? Um, it can't, the angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, some people have tried to say that the second angel comes and speaks to Zechariah. I just misspoke when I said that. I, I'm convinced that the second angel goes and speaks to the first and says, run, speak to that young man, saying Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. So um, basically they are, the second angel is trying to stop the first one from measuring uh, the the city. And the reason given is that Jerusalem doesn't need walls because it's going to be so large and uh, like essentially like busting at the seams because there's going to be so many men and so many cattle, um, so much livestock with each man that there can't be walls to contain it. Uh, verse five is a continuation of this conversation that's going on. And so uh, verse five says, for I declares the Lord will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. And this is where um, some of the, <laughs> so at first it seems like there's this, the second angel comes and just delivers the message. And, you know, he tells the first angel, Hey, actually you don't need to measure the city because Jerusalem's going to be so big that it won't have walls. And then the angel delivers a message from the Lord and, you know, it says basically this is the authority, the reason why, um, as well, like continuing explaining that the Lord will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. And when I read this, um, <laughs> I was thinking of how amazing of a reality it is that God will one day dwell with his people and he will be this fiery wall protecting his people. And then I remembered as well, um, my sister-in-law had brain surgery a couple years ago. Um, it's actually 2017. So almost four years ago. Um, yeah, it was, it, we just hit three years. Um, it'll be four years next August. So, um, anyways, when, that was going on. I remember my father-in-law was praying over and over again. And his, his big prayer would be <laughs> to ask for God to grant a hedge of protection around, um, my sister-in-law. And I, I wasn't really going to step on any toes. I wasn't really like, I, w I wasn't going to say much. Um, but we started at, you know, making a joke and I think uh, Tim Hawkins, who's a Christian comedian, has made the joke about <laughs> a hedge of protection. Uh, and we, you know, we think of, I, it was all in good intentions, you know, asking God to protect, his, he was asking God to protect his daughter. I don't blame him for that by any means. Um, but that phrase, asking God 
to be a hedge of protection is just kind of funny to me because we get this picture in scripture where rather than being just like, at least when I hear the word hedge, I think of like a short grass, like, or a short bush, just like on a, you know, in a nice suburban yard. And like, what's that going to do? Like to protect a thief from coming and like stealing your stuff. Like that's definitely not going to do anything. But then God describes himself as a wall of fire around his city. And when you get this imagery, like you can't get into a wall of fire. Like if you see a wall of fire, you're not getting in. It's not happening because you're either going to get burned up on your way in or you're going to get burned up on your way in (laughs) that. I mean, there needs to be um, an intentional opening to let you in. Um, otherwise there's no way to get in. Uh, so then this is also in reference to some of a lot of what Zechariah brings up as we go on is in reference to other previous old Testament promises. So for example, in, or pictures that have happened. So for example, in Exodus 14 verse 20, uh, this is when the camp of, the Israelites were camped out um, by the Red Sea and the Egyptians start to gain on them. And the, and Moses describes it as, so it came, so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. And that sounds kind of vague. Um, in part because it's the NASB and it's just trying to translate as literally as possible. Um, but basically what's happening is, uh, the, there's this cloud that came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And this cloud, um, was this big, thick, dark cloud, um, during the day. And then it gave light almost as like a wall of fire, um, at night. And, So I think this is probably the best image that Zechariah is dealing with at his time. He's kind of picturing this, this wall of fire and thinking like, man, it's like, even when there's the Egyptians coming after his ancestors and there's literally no border, God causes a border to separate them. Uh, later on, thanks to um, progressive revelation, um, the idea that um, God continues, God revealed things throughout time rather than just in one specific period, but he continued to reveal things from the time of the writing of Genesis to the time of writing of Revelation. And so uh, the canon is closed, so... No, there's no more scripture being written, but there's really, really cool imagery that's written in Revelation chapter 21, where John sees this picture of the new heaven and the new earth. So I'm going to read that where, yeah, I'm going to read two different sections. First is verses one through four, and then 22 to 27. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea 
and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell, or he will tabernacle among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Then later on in that chapter, verses 22 to 27, John says that he saw no temple in it, in the city of Jerusalem. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. So here we see this beautiful picture of a new heaven and a new earth, specifically a new Jerusalem that comes down um, where, uh, sorry, I'm scrolling back up, uh, where the glory of the Lord is, is the center. It's the focal point. Zechariah says that he hears the, the word of the Lord as I will be a fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. And here we're getting this picture that God is so glorious in the new heaven and new earth that there is no need for a temple. There is no temple because God himself is dwelling with his people. The lamb, the, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world is the temple himself in the, in the new Jerusalem. So then uh, Calvin writes that we now then perceive the meaning of the prophet to be this, that though the Jews saw that they were but few in number, weak in strength, wretched and despised, they had yet reason to entertain hope. For though few returned from exile, God was yet able to increase the church and to make it a vast multitude. And that this was certain and decreed, for it was shown by the vision that however unequal they were, to their enemies, as I mentioned with the vast contrast between even the Egyptians pursuing the Israelites and they're pinned up against the Red Sea and have no way of escape, God still protects them with becoming a providing a cloud to protect them, a cloud of fire nonetheless. And uh, God was sufficient. God was still sufficiently strong and powerful to defend them, and that however destitute they were of all blessings, God was still rich enough to enrich them, provided they relied on the blessing which he had promised, for he had engaged to render them happy and blessed within and safe from enemies from without. This is... Uh, basically just Calvin explaining the the verse that God uh, is rich in his mercy and able to protect his people 
no matter how few in number they are, um, as they return in exile or return from exile, God is still faithful to increase his people, uh, his chosen people. So let's move on to verse six, where Zechariah says, or the Lord says through Zechariah, Ho there, flee from the land of the north, decrees the Lord. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Verse 7, Ho Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. God reminds the Israelites that they've been dispersed throughout the whole world. So he says, flee from the land of the north, which is the Israelites were taken, I mean, essentially they were taken north. So he's, he's telling them, flee from that land, come back to Jerusalem. And he explains, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, meaning I have sent you to all parts of the world. I've sent you to, I've scattered you everywhere, just as all of the winds of heavens have scattered you. And then he says, Hosein, escape. You who are living with the daughter of Babylon. So at first it's, uh, talking to all of Israel, especially the northern tribe of Israel, who is taken away long before the southern tribe. And then he narrows in on Zion, which is another way of saying Jerusalem. Escape. You who are living with the daughter of Babylon. You who are taken captive by Babylon. Flee from there and come back to the, the, the holy city the place that God has sanctified. Verse eight uh, is where God continues for thus says the Lord of hosts. And then this is where stuff gets super interesting. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts after glory, he has sent me against the nations, which plunder you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. I'm going to read verse 9, and then we're going to go back to verse 8, because uh, verse 9 has the same language. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So verse 8 is where we begin this interesting language of, you know, we thought this was an angel speaking to Zechariah, but the angel has to be more. Because... Even though in verse 8, you know, we might conclude that he has sent me against the nations. Maybe God's sending uh, an angel, like a a warrior angel to come and, or the angel of death or something to go and destroy the nations. But no, in verse 9, it continues that, for behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And then verse 10 is where it gets so, so clear. If this isn't clear enough, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. There's no break. It doesn't, it doesn't change between the angel speaking and the Lord speaking. But there seems to be an interconnection that they are the same being. 
almost as if there's a trinity speaking <laughs> that Jesus I believe is saying to Zechariah as a promise to the Israelites behold I am coming I will dwell in your midst but before we get into that let's talk a little bit about um actually yeah let's let's keep keep getting into that <laughs> Uh, Calvin notes, I, I thought I had some other notes, but they're actually a little bit later down, um, specifically about the, the apple of his eye. Um, there it's some interesting language, but before we get into that, uh, I want to read what Calvin says, concluding that this is Christ who is speaking. He says, we hence conclude that Christ is here introduced, who is Jehovah and yet the angel or the messenger of the father. Though then the being of God is one expressed by the word Jehovah, it is not improper to apply it to apply it both to the Father and to the Son. Hence God is one eternal being, but God in the person of the Father commands the Son, who also is Jehovah, to restrain the nations from injuring the Jews by any unjust violence. The rabbis give this explanation that the prophet says that he himself was God's herald, and thus recites his word. But this is forced and unnatural. I indeed wish not on this point to contend with them, for being inclined to be contentious, they are disposed to think that we insist on proofs which are not conclusive. But there are other passages of Scripture which more clearly prove the divinity and the eternal existence of Christ, and also the distinction of persons. If, however, anyone closely examines the words of the prophet— he will find that this passage must be forcibly rested, except it be understood of Christ. We then consider that Christ is here set forth as the Father's herald, and he says that he was sent to the nations. Uh, so again, I'm going to continue to push that Christ is the one speaking to Zechariah. And here's where we begin to see the proof. And later on through verses 9 and 10, it becomes even more clear, but I, I, uh, because this is Christ who is, uh, speaking, it becomes clear that he is the one who will come and plunder the nations. And again, as I said, with the idea of progressive revelation later on in the new Testament, this gets clarified. Revelation 19 verses 15 and 16 say from his mouth, from the lamb's mouth, from Christ's mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The next chapter verses 11 through 15 deal with, uh, death and Hades being destroyed along with every single evil doer, uh, that, John wasn't kidding in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, that uh, Jesus will come with uh, a sword in his mouth and divide. And what I mean by division, let's look at Matthew 25, 31 to 33. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he 
will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And I'm sure we've all read this passage and it continues on with Jesus separating the sheep and the goats. And uh, it's this really, really neat passage of uh, Jesus later tells the goats, uh, those who, who don't know him, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, so Jesus is very serious about coming and bringing vengeance on those. Uh, I know there's somewhere, I believe it's in Isaiah where the Lord declares that vengeance is mine. Um, and that is used also in the new Testament to give us reason for, um, not being people who seek vengeance, but, but to have hope that, um, if we are people who are quick to forgive, God will be the one who will bring vengeance to those who are evildoers. Um, But I do want to take a second and quickly talk about this idea of the apple of his eye. So the the verse at the end says, um, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And when we, you know, we hear the phrase apple of his eye, it's kind of this idea of like a, beloved person, um, or a beloved object, something that we greatly adore. Um, but actually I don't know if translating it as apple of his eye is the best translation. And I'm by no means a Hebrew scholar or on any translation committee. So I could just be entirely wrong, but from the, the commentary notes that I've read, um, this is literally to be translated as the gate of his eye, which kind of, I guess, raises a question like, well, how useful is it to say the gate of his eye? Like what, what does that even mean? Like what is the gate of an eye? Um, but the commentary that I got specifically for this series, which is edited by Mick Comiskey, uh, suggested that um, this could be actually a scribal error because the the Hebrew word or the two words are bavavet a not a no bavavet a no, which literally means on the gate of his eye or in the gate of his eye, um, and so Mick Comiskey suggests that this is uh, dictography or the duplication of a letter. So essentially there's three B's all in a row in Hebrew, (laughs) which is really interesting and not really common. Um, and so he's kind of suggesting, okay, maybe this is, um, a duplication. And if that's the case, then it would be Bavat, you know, which is, um, on the daughter of his eye, either way. Um, if it's the gate of his eye, this kind of connotes this idea of an eyelid or um, a pupil. I would go with an eyelid because it's something that opens and closes the eye. It lets things in, lets things out. And if you've never really been poked in the eye or someone tries to like mess with your eyelid, that's not really a common thing. But if, if you've ever been like poked in the eye, like you're quickly going to swat them away and violently like say, Hey dude, get out of my face. Don't touch my eye. That hurts. It's a sensitive spot. Don't touch my eye. Um, if it's the daughter of an eye, um, 
it might be maybe um, some type of idiom meaning like similar to apple of his eye, or it could be referring to a pupil. So either either way, the idea is that you're touching something that's super precious and super sensitive. Um, so when the Lord says to Zechariah that he who touches you, that is the, the chosen people, those who are dwelling in Jerusalem, he who touches you, the, the enemy touching you, touches the apple of his eye. And then that's where we get verse nine for behold, I will wave my hand over them. And that I think helps further prove that this is, um, talking about an eyelid or, um, a pupil or something that you're, someone's trying to poke the eye and then you wave your hand over them. And, uh, then there's some more imagery that comes up where, so that they will be plunder for their slaves. There's this violent, like, fighting against anyone who's trying to go against God's people. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, is the end of verse 9. Um, verse 10, and, yeah, verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So here's where we get this clarity that the one who's speaking can't be an angel because if an angel comes and dwells with the Lord, then, okay, big deal. Angels come and talk to people all the time. That's the point. That's why they're an angel. They deliver messages. But uh, when the person who's speaking to Zechariah says, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, this is a, a message of hope. And verse 5 is where this started, that it will be, um, there will be a wall of fire and God will be the glory within Jerusalem. And then it kind of wraps up and brings it back again. I will, I am coming, I will dwell in your midst. And so the, the proper response to this is joy. Sing for joy and be glad that God is coming. He will dwell in our midst. And this is fulfilled in uh, in the person of Christ. And uh, it later continues to be fulfilled through the church that God has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in his church. So it's something that's, for us, it has been accomplished, it's continuing to be accomplished, and will one day be accomplished in its fullness. Verse 11 says, Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. We're getting this repetition of this language that God will dwell with his people. And that's how you will know. Uh, when, <laughs> I, I, don't, I just don't understand. I'm, I'm starting to think of like the Pharisees and the Jewish people of the, um, of the time of the first century who were, you know, vehemently denying Christianity, denying Christ, even though it says that many nations will join themselves, the Gentiles must come in to be the people of the Lord, that they must be the wild olive branches grafted in to the olive tree, as Romans 11 says. Uh, the, the Gentiles must come in, and in doing that, we will know that the Lord of hosts 
has sent this person, the Messiah, to be with us. Romans 9, 6, verse, or Romans 9, yeah. (sighs) Romans 9, verse 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended of Israel. Uh, I put this in my notes just because as I was focusing on many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and they will become my people. I always think of, of this truth in scripture that not all who are of Israel are truly Israelites. Um, the, the end of this verse says, then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is fulfilled in Christ. John one fourteen says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And this word dwelt, which I'm sure a lot of us have heard means to tabernacle or uh, set up a tent. Um, it's eskenosin, or it comes from the root eskenao. Uh, and there's a similar verb that's used in the Septuagint of verse 11, which is so cool. I was looking up the Septuagint and reading the Greek of it. And so the Septuagint's use of dwell and I will dwell in your midst uh, comes from the root kataskenao. And that's a compound word, kata plus skenao. And I'm not going to go into a whole lot of, you know, like speculation because compound words have their own particular meaning, their own nuanced meaning. But I was so fascinated that the the same verb root, skenao, is still used. So John 1 says skenao. Zechariah 2.11 says, Katasgenao. Um, it's clear that Jesus is the one who is dwelling, who's the one who is promised to dwell with his people. Let's keep moving. We're almost done. We got two more verses, and uh, we'll be done with chapter two. That's so neat. Uh, so verse 12, the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Judah, while referring to the Israelites, is not just Judah. As we already saw, you know, in Romans 9, not all who are descended of Israel, not all, excuse me, not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, uh, there's this idea of there being a true Israel connected from Genesis to Revelation, that God has a chosen people, and it includes Gentiles. It includes people from all over the world, which is why Jesus can be the Savior of the world, because he saves people from, he is the only one who can save us from the whole world. And God will choose Jerusalem again. And there's this promise that um, directly within the context of Zechariah that um, the Israelites who are hearing this are going to get encouraged 
That's the point of this message. It's an encouraging message that God didn't just abandon the Israelites. He didn't just abandon Judah and just leave them for good. But he's coming back. The temple is going to be rebuilt. That's the immediate immediacy of the promise that once this temple is rebuilt, then God will dwell with them again, as he did in the former days when uh, he was dwelling with them in the first temple. But we get this fuller picture, this fuller promise that he's going to not just dwell with them in a temple, but he's going to dwell with his people physically. Um, and he dwells with us, his chosen people, his his church through the Holy Spirit. And so we get this bigger picture in Revelation 21. I've already quoted... <laughs> A bunch of verses from 21, um, but verses 10 and 11 say, John says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And so God is faithful to his promise. He will again choose Jerusalem, even if Right now in our present day, it's not exactly the city of God. Even if back when Zechariah was writing this, it wasn't this great and glorious city, or it, maybe it wasn't the, the whole city of God as it once was. But God is faithful to his promises that he will choose Jerusalem. And then we get verse 13 to close out this, this whole message which is, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused in his holy habitation. And this last statement is just a concluding um, remark that all of creation, all flesh, all people should be silent before the Lord. And why should we be silent? Because the Lord is coming. We have awe and respect and reverence for him. And when he's aroused from his holy habitation, he's about to move. There's something powerful that's about to happen. God's about to do something amazing. And this ties everything together that God isn't just one day far off going to dwell with his people. But the message to the Israelites and to us is that God will soon come and dwell with us. And that's our promise that we get from Scripture, from this passage, that God will come and dwell with us. So I hope that you can take this as a message of hope that God is going to dwell with us. And even though there is pain and fear and uncertainty God is our certainty. Christ is our certainty. And we we don't have to just look to escape one day, but we know that the Holy Spirit already dwells with us. We know who our rock is. We know that we can lean and trust on Christ. And one day we get to fully dwell with our Savior and worship Him forever. Which kind of sounds really intimidating. And I know that when I was a new Christian or maybe right before I was actually a Christian, um, before I got saved, 
I used to think of this idea of just shooting off to heaven and worshiping God forever. And I used to think of that and be like, well, that'll be cool for like a few years, but like, that'll be pretty boring. Like, that doesn't sound good. I don't know if I really want to go to heaven. And looking back at that, after Christ has changed my heart and he has actually saved me, I can look back and see how foolish that is to think. And when we understand the depth of what, the depth of Christ's love and the ferocity of the wrath that we should be facing, there's nothing else that we would want to do than to dwell with our savior forever, not just for a thousand years, not just for a hundred thousand years, but forever because we get to be with the one who made us, the one who made everything, the one who saved us from himself. So I, I hope that this is, um, I know this has been a really encouraging message for me, a really hopeful message that God is not done and he is one day going to come back with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. And yet when, when that happens, we can look at him with, uh, joy and excitement that we get that our savior has come. He gets to liberate us from the bondage of sin and we get to be free to love him and free to uh, enjoy his presence. So thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, if you liked what you listened to, give us a rating review, share what you heard, uh, share what you liked and go out, love God, love others, share the hope that God is coming back. Uh, Christ will indeed return. And it's a good message. It's not something to be afraid of, but it's something that we can look forward to in excitement. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen. And subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the show, reach out on social media or email us at ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and Doctrinal Discipleship. For other edifying material, check out reformpodcasts.com and Doctrinal Discipleship either on Facebook or doctrinaldiscipleship.com.